Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We'll get started in just a moment. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing so that you may stay up to date with the latest podcast. And if our podcast brings value to your life, please consider sharing it with family and friends. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been in the pulpit. I'm anxious to get back. We really, really enjoyed the interview last week with Jenny and Jerry Sanders. Uh, I've heard so many wonderful comments and so many things about how much you enjoyed that last week, and, uh, and, and I certainly did as well. Uh, back in the Word today, uh, in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Two verses there. Uh, and I'm reading in the, uh, the NIV version this morning. John chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 17. It says this, The Word, which is Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, please pay attention to this, full of grace and truth. And verse 17, contrasting with the law, he says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray your blessing over this uh, time in your word today. I pray that you would operate through me, through your spirit, and that you would operate that that beautiful gift of communication where we can can hear the word of God through one man's voice. We can hear your voice. We can hear your word, and you can penetrate each individual heart in the way that you see fit. Lord, would you use me as a yielded vessel now to communicate the truth of your word And Lord, give us the courage to apply it in our lives and be willing to answer yes to your invitation today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Well, these two words have been uh, the consistent whisper of the Father in my ears this week, pushing through all the other loud and insistent voices that are competing for my attention. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. As I thought about what's going on in in the lives of our church members, as I've tried to stay in touch and tried to hear from you and speak to you uh, as as, as best I can, I I just, as I'm thinking about what each of you are going through, grace and truth keeps penetrating my heart. As I think about uh, what's going on in our culture, in our society, in our state, grace and truth. As I think about uh, where God is taking us Uh, in the vision, seeing the vision of our church come to pass. And as I see him begin to accelerate that opportunity and I see what it's going to take to accomplish what God is is building and creating in us, uh, the grace and truth. As I think about the Great Commission, the charge that Jesus left his body to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples, as I sense this growing passion and drive to see souls saved that I sense rising up in myself and I, and I sense in the spirit, in the church, grace and truth is what keeps coming back to me. 
And so today, I want to have a really honest conversation with you about the desperate need for grace and truth in our church, in our culture, most importantly, in our lives. And I want to lay a biblical foundation for it, and then I want to spend a little time talking about the application of that truth in our lives. Okay, so, so let's dive in. I've told you for a long time that grace is, is not just a cover-up for sin. It's not a huge spiritual rug that we just sweep our sins under. Grace is a, is a spiritual power. It's a spiritual enabling to do what we can't do for ourselves. Now, does that include the forgiveness of our sins and, and the inclusion, our inclusion in the family of God? Absolutely it does. Ephesians tells us that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus the Son. We could not do it on our own, so we need that spiritual enabling to allow us to do it. It took the power of God to save us and to forgive us. But in the verse that we just read, this spiritual power called grace is being applied a little differently. In this case, it's referring to a God-given ability to communicate God's love to somebody else. It's, it's, a, it's the God-given ability to be this conduit, to be this pipe from God to another person, this connection, it, to, to attract people to God through us, to put, people, uh, to put people at ease around us so that somehow, even if they're spiritually dead, they can sense the love of the Father. It's It's grace. There's, there's just an ease about a person who is full of grace. That's not just a natural gift. It's not just a personality thing. It's a spiritual enabling that, that uh, comes from becoming more like Jesus. And we need it more and more every day. You see, John's gospel tells us that in his time on earth, Jesus was full of grace. How do we know that's true? Because sinners were attracted to him. The poor, the needy, the sick, the outcasts, the regular people, the people who were usually intentionally repelled by the powerful people of the day were almost involuntarily attracted to Jesus. It's like they almost couldn't help themselves. In Matthew 11, Jesus is called a friend of sinners. Now, why would Jesus want to be a friend of sinners? He tells us in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this. This is Jesus speaking. I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifices because I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. He, he can't call them to repentance. He can't heal them. He can't save them if they won't talk to him and they won't listen to him. So Jesus came full of grace so that he could carry out his ministry mission on this earth. He was not only the friend of sinners, but Jesus was a friend to anybody who wanted a friend. He broke down every barrier that he came across. In John chapter four, he struck up a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. 
And that broke down racial and, and gender barriers. In Matthew 15, he healed the daughter of a Canaanite woman, breaking down racial and, and religious barriers. In Matthew 8, Jesus healed the servant of a Roman centurion, and that broke down political and social and racial barriers. In, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus went home with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, breaking down social and political and economic barriers. Do you see the picture here? When you're full of grace, like Jesus was, there is a spiritual ability to connect with people that cuts across all the barriers that the world uses to divide us and separate us. And that grace connects us along the most basic unifying theme of all that we all desperately need God in our lives. The other thing that our opening scripture tells us is that Jesus was not only full of grace, but he was full of truth. As a matter of fact, Jesus would eventually say, I am the truth. He's the living embodiment of the truth. As God, it's impossible for him to, to lie. So every word that came from the mouth of Jesus was truth. And it was truth in conjunction with love. It was grace and truth not working separately, not one at a time, but together. His truth was always wrapped in love and his grace was always supported by the truth. I want to show it to you in one really, really famous account in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. This is, this is a lot of scripture, but you need to see how this plays out. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. And a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the, relig the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and started to write in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Jesus stood up again, said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Such a powerful passage. And so many things to learn from it. But, but let's look at how Jesus used both grace and truth. Because this is the embodiment of grace and truth. Clearly his grace was evident in the fact that he didn't call for her or call for or condone her stoning. He, his graceful and wise response uh, to her accusers literally saved her life. And there was clearly truth evident when he, when he uh, let her know that adultery was not the way of life for a child of God, that God was not pleased with that, and that she should abandon that lifestyle and follow him. But, but look deeper. 
he could have spoken a harsh truth to her. He could have said, I saved your hide today, but if you hadn't been sleeping with somebody else's husband, none of this would have happened. Now, is that the truth? Yeah. Is it graceful? Is it attractive? Nope. Even the truth he spoke was wrapped in grace and wrapped in love. She knew he was right, knew she had to change, but she also knew that she had just encountered a loving God who actually cared about her, and it made all the difference in the world. But being full of grace and truth doesn't just allow Jesus to speak truth, it allows him to see truth and hear truth. See, grace allowed him to connect with this woman's fear and desperation. In that moment, he understood what she must have been feeling and going through. But truth also allowed him to connect the dots of the story. You see, something wasn't quite adding up in this story. How is it that these people caught her in the very act of adultery? And that's some pretty convenient timing, don't you think? And, and while they were accurate that the law of Moses demanded uh, her execution, uh, that was the incomplete truth. The, the reality is the law of Moses demanded the execution of both parties. So where was the guy that was involved? This wasn't all adding up. This was a setup. They didn't care anything about keeping Israel morally pure. They were trying to trap Jesus, and they used this woman to do it. But Jesus, being full of grace and truth, was able to connect with this woman to hear her unspoken story and then respond appropriately in a way that offered redemption, it offered salvation, it offered a relationship with God. See, the Bible is clear that as followers of Jesus, we are supposed to be more and more like him. That's really the job description of a Christian, is to become more like Jesus. The more time we spend with him in prayer, the more time we spend with him in worship, the more we learn of him in the word, then the more like him we should become. So that means if Jesus was full of grace and truth, we need to be full of grace and truth. Here's the problem. Grace and truth are not naturally occurring traits in humans, right? What occurs in us more naturally is two very different traits. And it was the title of a 19th century classic novel by Jane Austen. It, instead of, of grace and truth that Jesus wants us to operate in, more often than not, we're full of pride and prejudice. Pride and prejudice work together, almost interwoven to prevent us from making a kingdom connection with people. You see, if grace and truth is how Jesus operated in order to draw people, draw sinners to repentance, pride and prejudice is what the enemy uses to keep us separated from people who need to hear the gospel, to repel people instead of draw people. If grace and truth are what operates in the lives of people who have an authentic relationship with Jesus, then pride and prejudice are what operates in the lives of religious people who hated Jesus. 
And I want to show it to you. In Luke chapter 18, a really telling, a really raw, rude sort of passage, but it's the truth. Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everybody else. That's pride and prejudice, right? Here's the story. Jesus said, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, that's a religious leader of the day, and the other was a despised tax collector. Everybody hated the tax collector. The Pharisee stood up by himself and prayed this prayer. Listen to this, listen to this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like a, that I'm not a sinner like everybody else, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't sin? Are you kidding me? I, I don't uh, commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. Man, what a prayer. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow and he said, Oh God, be merciful to me for I'm a sinner. Here's what Jesus said. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pride and prejudice. See, pride says, I'm not like this person over here. I would never do those things. I would never make those choices. I would never go those places. I'd never say those things. I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And then prejudice comes alongside and says, uh, I, know about, I know all about those kind of people. See, prejudice means to prejudge or to judge before. To judge before what? Before you have any information or experience. So prejudice is the set of assumptions that you carry and pride convinces you that you're right. As a matter of fact, it convinces you that all of your assumptions are correct and it eliminates any possibility that there might be something you don't know or that something that you might have wrong. And that is a dangerous combination. But I bet you're already thinking of somebody just like that, right? They know everything. They have a context for everything that happens in the world. There's a box for this and a box for that, a box for everything and for everybody. And they make sure that everything fits neatly into their little boxes of understanding. Even if that means they ignore all other evidence to the contrary. Pride and prejudice are key components of religion. And it's why religious people hated Jesus, full of grace and truth. See, pride and prejudice says, I already know all about those people. I can't be seen talking to those people anyway. So I'm just going to tell them the way it is. And I'm going to condemn, I'm going to stand up for the truth. I'm going to condemn them for their sinful lifestyles. It's tough love, but somebody's got to do it, right? It's the simple, hard truth. Grace and truth says, let's connect with people as individuals. Let's treat them with respect. Let's listen to their stories. Let's understand what they've been through and then help them to get to God from wherever they are without judgment and without condemnation. Listen, if Jesus himself said in John chapter three, 
that he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world? What in the world gives us the right to cast the first stone at anybody? You see the difference? Grace and truth, pride and prejudice. You see, people will say, look, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. How could any of all that still apply to us? Well, let's talk about the, the world that Jesus ministered and lived in. It was a divided world. There were religious divisions between Jews and Gentiles and all sorts of little subdivisions. There was racial hatred. There was political turmoil. There was gender inequality. There was institutional injustice. There was violence. There was disrespect. There was division. Hey, does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that sound like the world of, of 2020? And Jesus walked into a divided world like this, uh, and, he, and he walked in a, a world full of pride and prejudice and was able to reveal God to people despite their differences. How was he able to do that? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. And more often than not, he did it in homes. He did it in the marketplace. He did it around dinner tables. He did it around campfires. He did it walking down the dusty trails of the backwoods of Israel. So how do we make a difference in this divided, crazy 21st century world that we live in? Well, I'll tell you this. It, we won't make a difference from angry pulpits and from social media rants. It, it, we're not going to make a difference by trolling people on Twitter. The, the souls and the lives of this world it will, will, will not be the prize of, of debates that we've won. We will make a difference in this world when we have conversations with people. No assumptions, no prejudging, no self-righteousness when we are real and relational and reaching. Isn't that what we say? You say, what, John, uh, hang on, it's, it's harder than it sounds because people, people came to Jesus all the time sort of willingly, but, but sinners avoid me like the plague. Well, maybe you need to drain out some of the pride and the prejudice and fill up with some grace and some truth because people in the world can sniff out pride and prejudice from a mile away. I have to uh, admit, I, am, uh, I, I struggled this week trying to figure out how to communicate what I feel like God is pouring in. Um, for years, I've prayed uh, for God to give me a vision for this church so that we could fulfill the Great Commission because that's the mission of, of this and every other Bible-believing church. That's not optional. But, but my prayer, my, my desire was, God, how do we do it? How do we fulfill the Great Commission in a way that is uniquely suited for us, for who we are? And I believe that God has shown it to me and is pouring it out and unfolding it to me more and more and that he is about to reveal opportunities that are going to blow our minds. And I'm excited about it because I believe our hands are ready because you know I love you. You know I brag about you. And, 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 and I think you are uh, uniquely suited for what God is, is opening up for us. But I'm also a little concerned because I'm not sure that our hands heads and our, and our minds are prepared for what's about to happen. 
Not just your hearts and minds, but, but mine. And, and it's not because we don't want to be ready, but because it's so often uh, hard to tell the difference in, in what our deeply held personal convictions are and the eternal truth of the word. You following me? That's why the word of God is sharp and powerful, even to the separation of bone and marrow. And that's tight. That's close. But the word of God has to separate that stuff so that, so that we can tell the difference in what's truth and what's not. And the word will help us to know the difference when we submit to it. You see, what happens if in our ministering grace and truth to people, their experiences reveal to us some things that challenge our assumptions, that challenge what we have always believed about how the world operates? What if we start discovering some things that we never thought of before? What if, we, if what we've learned and what we've experienced um, and that's the truth for everybody. What we've learned and what we've experienced help us navigate and make sense of our lives. And, and we all have to have those in order to, to, to make it. But if we're not careful, we will assume that everything we think is the truth and that everything we've experienced is the way it is. And that sets us up for pride and for prejudice. You see, we don't learn truth from our political parties. We don't learn truth from our race. We don't learn truth from our economic status or from our region of the country or from our denomination. Jesus Christ is the truth. And we have to be committed to, to nothing less than the eternal truth of the word of God. And we have to also be committed to letting everything else take its rightful place in submission to that truth because my wisdom won't change people. My perspective won't help people. My experience won't save people, but my Jesus will. Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. So what is it that God's laying out in front of us? Well, God is calling us first and foremost to win souls. And that means going getting outside the walls, going and interacting with people, with, with people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. That means getting involved in the lives of sinners who may have a lifestyle that's not only different from us, but is offensive to us. God's calling us as a church to fight sex trafficking in, 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 we, in what we're calling the Jericho Project. That means getting involved in the, in the ugly, cruel issues that usually operate in darkness. God's calling us to minister to people of all races and all backgrounds where the rich and the poor and, and anybody else can come and, and experience God. That means we have to build relationships with people who have had a life experience that have taught them different things about the world than we've learned. It, it's about crawling out of the comfort of our little boxes and our little bubbles and meeting people on their own terms and in their own context. And, and we will fulfill the call of God on our lives as individuals and as a, as a church. But as we do that, we're going to come face to face with poverty 
and with racism and with sin and with politics and with crime and injustice and all kinds of things that good Christians don't usually deal with. Things that might challenge what we've always believed or understood or maybe what we just wish were true. And that's why about 90 to 95% of good Christians in this country will never personally lead a soul to Jesus because the issues that surround sinners are just too messy and too uncomfortable. But what is a soul worth? So I'm already doing the homework. I'm already trying to dive into the issues. I'm already trying to prepare myself. Why? And I want you to listen to this with grace and truth. Why am I trying to dive in? Why am I trying to prepare myself mentally and, and, and prepare my heart? Why am I trying to do that? Because I am a middle-class, white, rural, religious, educated Republican raised by both my parents in the same home I'm married to a woman. I've been married to the same woman for almost 30 years. Never tasted alcohol. Never smoked a cigarette. Never put a chemical in my body that I didn't buy over the counter or with a prescription. My life has been far from perfect, but it's also far from the experience of many people not far from here who need to know Jesus. But if I think that I understand what makes a woman sell her body, if I think I know what it feels like to be afraid to go for a jog because of the color of your skin, if I think I know what drives a person to take drugs or to deal drugs or to join a gang or what the pressure feels like when you don't know how you're going to feed or bathe or house your children, then I'm going to miss the opportunity to make a difference in the lives of people who are different than me because I'm going to approach it from my understanding and what I think is true and I'm going to completely miss what they've lived in and where they're coming from. You see, I can see the trajectory. I can see what God's doing in me and in my life and where he's taking me. God will have laid all of this groundwork, will have brought me to this point in my life and in my ministry, will have ordered my steps only to have me so full of pride and prejudice that I can't fulfill the call. God forbid. May I decrease and may God increase. May I empty myself of pride and prejudice of what I think I know and be filled every day more and more with a humility that brings grace and truth so that I can connect to anybody who needs Jesus and that I won't be a hindrance to them getting to the foot of the cross. And I have to believe, I have to believe that you're seeing and sensing the same thing in your life and in our church. 
Something is happening. Something is moving. Something is on the horizon. And we have to be ready. Listen, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I'm just going to tell you, I'm so tired of this virus, I can't even, I can't even explain it. It, it, it's time. I'm tired of every message I preach being about the virus. I'm tired of all. I'm, it's time for the church to move past trying to figure out how to survive the virus. I mean, no disrespect, but it's time for us to focus on the mission once again. It's time for us to focus on the vision that God has placed in front of us and get ourselves ready for what God is calling us to. Yes, people are getting sick and dying of the virus. I'm not minimizing that, but far more people are getting sick and dying of the effects of poverty and sin and injustice and preventable diseases in our society. In this, the greatest nation on earth. And when they're dying, their eternity is hanging in the balance. And most of them don't know Jesus. We can't forget that. So let's get ready. Let's get ready. This has got to be a place where we are known to be the friends of sinners. And if that bothers you, if that makes you uncomfortable, then covenant life is not the place for you. This has to be a place that's full of grace and truth where nothing shocks us and nothing surprises us and nothing makes us draw back from people where people can take off the masks and be real with us, be real with themselves, be real with God, where we listen and we learn and we love and we lead them to Jesus. That's grace and truth. And it can't just be that way at church. We have to be that way in our lives with the people that we interact with because more and more evangelism that actually works is going to be less invitational and more personal. It won't be come to my church with me in a few days or in a few weeks and listen to my pastor. It's going to be, let me tell you about the mess that I was when I found Jesus. And let me show you the person that I know. You understand the difference? It's no more God, thank you, that I'm not like those nasty sinners over there. And a whole lot more that I once was lost, but now I'm found. A whole lot more. I can't imagine your pain. I can't imagine what it must have been like to go through that. I am sorry that, you, that you've had to be there. Let me put my arm around you and let's walk together to get help and to get healing and to get you to Jesus. followers of Jesus, we have to be full of grace and truth. And I say in my life, God, so let it be. So let it be. Let me ask you this question today as, as we get ready to close. Are you willing to give up pride and prejudice? 
Are you willing to give up what you think you know in order to be free to communicate eternal truth to people who are dying without Jesus? To people who desperately need a hand but will not receive a hand that looks down their noses at them. Will not hear the truth from someone that they see judgment in their eyes. You understand what I'm saying? What's the soul worth? What are you willing to give? Or what are you willing to give up in order to fulfill the call of God, not just on this church, but on our lives? Because the great commission to go and make disciples is not just a corporate call. It's a personal one. It's an individual mandate to every person who knows Jesus and claims Him as their Lord and Savior. So are you ready to be ready? And if you are, then it's a matter of humbling yourself before the Lord, of repenting. John, do church people have to repent? Oh, good Lord, every day. I do. I have to repent every day. And you know, the, the biggest... The biggest sin I repent of every day? Pride. God, forgive me for thinking I know more than I do. Forgive me for my self-sufficiency and the arrogance of my soul to believe that I can do something without you. So if you, if you are ready to get ready to do whatever it is God's called us to do, then it starts like everything else in the kingdom of God. It starts with repentance. Humbling yourself before God laying everything on the altar and then doing what he tells you to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for bringing us through. We thank you for bringing us to this place, to this point in our lives. We thank you for the call of God that is without repentance. We thank you for the gifts that enable us to do it. We thank you for grace and truth, for without grace and truth, none of us would be in your, in your family. None of us would be saved. All of us would be destined for hell. So I thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, full of grace and truth. And I pray that as we place our faith in him and as we surrender our lives to him, as we make him in charge of us, that we are also more and more every day full of grace and truth and that we are repentant enough and honest enough with you to empty ourselves of pride and prejudice. God, would, with your word, would you show us what we're holding to in our lives that is not eternal and that is not the truth. God, I pray that you would help us to, to easily set aside anything that's standing between us and the harvest so that we can look at people in the eyeball without judgment, without prejudice, not caring where they've been, not caring what they've done, but uniting and, and, and uh, connecting with them at the basic level of our human condition that we all need Jesus. Help us to hear what they're saying, to feel what they're feeling, and to take them 
where they need to go in you. Less of us, Lord, more of you. And Father, as we submit ourselves and humble ourselves, as we repent, as we pray, as we seek your face, as we operate more and more in grace and truth, would you open doors of opportunity for us as individuals and as a church? May we make a difference in the kingdom of God, not just in West Georgia, but in the world because the fields are white for harvest. Lord, would you send us in as laborers? We thank you, Lord. I thank you for a church to serve where I can speak boldly the truth of your word and I can trust that people are hearing and receiving because that's their heart. Their heart is after you. I thank you for this church, for the wonderful grace that you've placed here. And I pray that that just increases more and more every day intentionally so that we can look more like you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us today. What a wonderful time we had in worship. I hope that you've connected with the truth of the word and that you'll share this service with people uh, on social media. Share with people in your life. Invite them to join us next week. Don't forget, live at 5 on Tuesdays and and Thursdays. Uh, Don't forget our live stream services every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Thank you for joining us today. God bless you. If you need something, please let us know. Have a great Sunday. We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.